We never know the far-reaching effects of one visit or two visits, but I had the tremendous privilege as a young man of sitting in Bible college under the ministry of a man called the Reverend Duncan Campbell. And Duncan Campbell was the Lord's servant in revival in the Outer Hebrides, which is a group of islands off the west coast of Scotland. The revival lasted for four years, from 1949 to 1953. The interesting thing is that it was two great aunts of your president who were the praying intercessors that precipitated that revival. Their niece left the Hebrides in 1930, actually, or thereabouts, and she met Fred Trump. And Donald Trump was the last but one child of that union. There was a young man also converted in that revival. He was 15 years of age. His name was Donald Smith. And Donald Smith became such a profound influence in the revival that even though he was just a mid-teenager, he became a close traveling companion with the mature Mr. Campbell, who was probably in his 40s or 50s at that time, age-wise, and had a profound influence in the course of the revival. He was a cousin of that lady who was President Trump's mother. What an amazing world we live in. And what a profound impact we make on lives. When we were a lot younger than we are, we pointed a little boy to the Lord Jesus Christ in a children's meeting in our home. He was 10 years of age. My wife, who was a teacher in the school in the town where we lived, was teaching a class, and there was a lovely little girl there. And at one of our vacation Bible schools, Sharon came to the Lord Jesus Christ. To this day, we have followed and tracked their lives through Bible college, through college and seminary. And now Alan and Sharon head up and are president, uh, he is president of the whole connection of the Brethren in Christ churches here in the United States of America. He is now 54 or 55 years of age. And that movement has had its roots in Methodism. And Alan said to us, you know, he said, Mr. and Mrs. Stewart, wherever I go, he said, I always come back to that point where you came into my life and changed the future of my life. His mom and dad were not saved. She said to him on one occasion as a young teenager, she said, Alan, your Bible is to you what my cigarettes and the racehorses are to me. It was from that kind of background that he came. But what an impact he is making on the world now. So these are little ripples in our lives. We have so many stories that we could share. And Adam, yes, well, I know you'll always be in my debt. But if you come to Ireland, then we will try and uh, just give you a lovely taste of what it's like there sometime. 
It's just such a joy. Great to see you all. Lovely to be with you. Lovely to be with the teenagers last. Not the teenagers, the, what did you call them? The new phase. You could have another group called the teenagers, couldn't you? <laughs> it's great to be around you. Well, time will go so quickly. I'm going to keep my message uh, to the point and brief today. And we do have an extensive Bible reading, but let me just abbreviate that for the sake of time. And it is found in the Gospel according to St. John. And we're going to read some verses from chapter 12. St. John chapter 12, commencing to read at verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy King cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they these things which were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, who was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth or loves less his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Sorry. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Amen, and I trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. This is Palm Sunday, and that's why I've selected this particular passage. Also, I'm aware that over these recent weeks, uh, your pastor's been taking you through a journey in John's gospel, and what an amazing and wonderful gospel it is. But when we come to this unique event in the record that John leaves with us, of course, also given to us by the other gospel writers, we have a vast congregation of people. They have gathered at Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, one of the three mandatory occasions of gathering for the nation at Jerusalem. 
the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And as we move through the chapter, it's quite a a dramatic chapter with many uh, uh, key figures that appear in it, and they all seem to be coming to a climactic point in their lives. Mary breaks that very, very expensive uh, little uh, box of ointment or that alabaster box and pours it out on the Savior, uh, anointing him toward his forthcoming passion and burial. Judas comes out in his true colors as saying, Why this waste? You know, it should have been given to me and I would distribute it to the poor. But it says, of course, that his real motive was that he kept the bag and he was the thief. So that really wasn't the reason why he wanted the money. The poor were not so close to his heart as he tended to pretend. But looking at the bigger picture and the congregations and the groups of people that were gathered there in this great uh, conglomeration of humanity that had gathered at Jerusalem, uh, there were those who were present there in anticipation of the fulfillment of a, a political dream. They really were there because they thought the moment has come when the king has arrived who will throw off the shackles of Roman dominion and then we will be free. Hosanna, blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they were really driven by emotion. And in a large crowd like that, it's easy to see how people get caught up in the emotion of the event, and they are driven by that emotion. There were also those in that gathering whose agenda was to overthrow the Messiah and his kingdom. And they were driven, of course, by hatred. But they seem to be uh, in consternation when we come to verse 19 because they say, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. There were also those who were attracted because Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And they were driven by the sensational. They wanted to see Lazarus and, of course, maybe something else unusual might happen. But there was another group in that large number of people who were distinctly different. And we read about them. And they were drawn with a desire for intimacy with the Master. The others were driven But these people were drawn. They were drawn by a desire for intimacy because when you separate them out from all the rest, here they are, and it says, And there were certain Greeks, Hellenistic Jews, among them that came up to worship at the feast. And what did they say? Sir, we would see Jesus. And on Palm Sunday... There's a group of people who are distinctly different. They are people who want to come closer to Jesus than all those others. They want to feel and sense and know him for themselves. They want to enter into the knowledge of who he really is. And what a request it was. Sir, we would see Jesus. Friends, that's my kind of company. That's the kind of people that I like to be around. 
those who are not just there on the emotional whim of the day, not amongst those who are driven by hatred, not amongst those who are driven by the sensational, but those who are drawn by the magnetic power, the supernatural wonder of this person that we have been worshiping, the band has been playing, uh, Lindsay has been singing, we have been joining and uniting our hearts together to be drawn to that point in this Palm Sunday service where we are really saying in our hearts, Sir, we would see Jesus. And it is my submission to you today that they were not disappointed, but they saw more than a man. They were given a revelation of the purpose for which he came. And secondly, they were given a revelation of those master principles which were the sum total of his life. And very quickly I want to mention those to you and then move forward. What were the master principles that were the sum total of the life of this man who rides into Jerusalem? We find them in the latter part of the reading of this morning's service. The necessity of sacrifice. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Then there is the vitality of his life. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life for less loves his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal the vitality of his life the humility of servanthood and I think that was kind of mooted in the prayer when Adam was praying the servanthood of the master where he says if any man serve me let him follow me and where I am there shall also my servant be if any man serve me, him will my father honor. But primarily, and I left it to this point so that we might be able to catch the significance of it, primarily the whole episode is the glory of God. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The story is told about the Reverend W. Dr. W. E. Sangster, who was a great Methodist in London, preacher and writer. And he tells a story about the First World War when a soldier who was fighting in the battlefields of France came to the ruins of a bombed out church. And as he walked into the church and amongst the ruins, he found there a frame. And it had been a frame with the portrait of the Lord Jesus. The words on the lower part of the frame were, Eke homo, behold the man. He actually picked up the broken frame with the centerpiece smashed out of it. And he posted it home to his family thinking it would be a, a nice souvenir. When they got it, they took it and they put a myrrh in the frame and they hung it on their wall of their home. Sometime later a gentleman was passing through and they asked him just to wait for a little while in the sitting room or wherever 
until they would call the family. And as he was looking around, he saw this frame and the words, Eki Homo, Behold the Man. And as he walked forward to it, he was somewhat surprised because he saw himself within the frame, in the mirror. The application that comes from that, from Dr. Sangster's pen, is this. That our aim is to see ourselves in Christ. That is, to compare and contrast the persons we are to the person he is. To take a mirror, as it were, of the divine life revealed to us in the Gospels. And come to know the persons we are as we gaze on the picture he drew. That, I think, is a very powerful and telling statement from Dr. Sangster. The man who founded a movement called the Faith Mission in Scotland in 1886 was a man called John George Govan. He had a brother called Horace Govan. And he wrote a beautiful hymn And the recurring phrase of it is, we would see Jesus. And the chorus goes like this, Lord, we humbly pray, take the veil away, touch our hearts today, we would see Jesus. And then we will truly be able to say, I have not just seen a man, not just a man, but a life. These people were introduced to a life more than a man. And the great principles in the life of Jesus were first of all the necessity of self-sacrifice. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. That principle of self-surrender is found in the master Essentially and dominantly right through his life. It takes priority. And it does so here in this lovely episode of John's Gospel. And it's in the seeming gloom of death. And in the horrendous cross of sacrifice. That the greatest glory is manifested. And in this he says. The son of man shall be glorified. He says, except that corn of wheat, referring to himself, falls into the ground and dies, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Here we are, this Lord's day, so many years later, and we are the fruits of the corn of wheat that fell into the ground. The one who gave his life an offering And a sacrifice. And out of that laying down of himself. In self-surrender. Here we are. Gathered together. Worshipping him. And not just us. But people all around the world this day. Who are rising up to acclaim and proclaim. The name of Jesus. And when he looks across. To his father. Sitting at his right hand. Looking across, I'm sure I sense to feel him say, Father, it was worth it all. Mm. 
It was worth it all for Lindsay Godbolt's parents. It was worth it all for any one of us that's in this gathering this morning. Because every single life, wherever they are in the world today, and Emily is with us and has a particular interest in Japan, and we have connections in Japan as well, and in so many other places in the world, when we look at them and we see the people who are part of the family that we belong to, the Savior, the Master who gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice, is seeing of the fruits of his passion. He is seeing of the travail of his soul. And we listen to that reading this morning from Isaiah chapter 53. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be abundantly satisfied. But John 12 and 24 is more than just a principle governing his life. It is meant to become operational in our lives. That we too become planted into his death. And when we are, our discipleship will become effective. Apart from it, it is more defective than effective. And we will never know Christ crucified. We will never really know Christ crucified until we know ourselves crucified with Christ. He said, people, visitors to Jerusalem, I want you to hear me. I want you to catch the significance not just of the miracles that I do and the things that I have done and all of that that you may have heard about, but I want you to know that this is the principle that governs my life and I am speaking now not subjectively, but I am also speaking to you objectively. Dear people who have gathered with the gatherings that have come from all over the countryside, I'm speaking to you objectively Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. And then I open it right out and he speaks into my heart. Not just the lives of these people on Palm Sunday so long ago, but into my life. And as the lovely hymn again referring back to that beautiful hymn of Horace Govins, Our hearts unveil, anoint our eyes. We would see Jesus till all self's glory fades and dies. We would see Jesus. I trust that today somehow that will become a reality. I love Dr. Paul S. Rees. He was one time speaker at the great Keswick Convention in England. And of course there are Keswick's in many different other parts of the world. And I have some of his books and his writings and one of them is a wonderful volume. The title of it is The Radiant Cross. But this is a quotation from Dr. Paul Rees. Knowing the crucified means nothing less than the free operation in life of a heavenly principle that cuts right across the methods of men with their subtle self-interest and far-sighted expediency, it means a willingness to be effaced that Christ may be 
exalted. A willingness to be effaced that Christ may be exalted. The principle of self-surrender. It's also true to say that in the passage we have a life of endless triumph. The cross is not the terminus. Hallelujah. There is another story beyond the cross. A gentleman in England who picked up a Bible for the very first time in his life and began to read came through the Matthew's Gospel. And when he began to read the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I was broken, my tears ran down my cheeks. I thought, what an amazing message this is. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then he read on through, remembering for this very first time, this man Jesus. And then he read about the crucifixion. And he said, when I read about the crucifixion, he said, my heart was completely broken. I wept and wept and thought, why, how could people do this to such a man as Jesus was? What he didn't know was that at that moment, there was another chapter beyond the chapter of the cross. And he says, so when I began to read about the resurrection, oh, he said, the joy that came into my heart. And of course, he came to know the Lord, and he's involved with the Gideons. You've heard about the Gideon movement, and has been for quite a number of years. My friends, there is a chapter beyond the chapter of the cross. There is a chapter beyond the identifying of our lives with Him in His death. I am crucified with Christ. I am that corn of wheat that falls into the ground and dies to itself and dies to its ambitions and dies to its wishes and its own sense of importance. It is crossed out by the cross member of the cross, the eye. And out of it there comes a sequel. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The life beyond the crucifixion. The life beyond the self-effacement. The life beyond the surrender. Nevertheless, I live. And life beyond the cross is resurrection life. It is resurrection life and power. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live. I wonder what kind of life you now live. I wonder what your estimation is of the life that you have in this context, not in the context of your business acumen or your wealth, or your status in society, but in the context of who I am in His presence, and who I am in His death, and who I am in His life, the life which I now live, I live through the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Do you know what the next verse says? The next verse says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. 
It is the yielded life. It is the surrendered life. It is the crucified life that out of it comes the sanctifying fullness of Jesus that then the onward movement of that life is a life of resurrection victory, a life of resurrection power. And such a life becomes a channel for the grace of God. There is no blockage. There is no frustration. There is the free-flowing evidences of the grace of the Lord Jesus through the yielded life. And it becomes a life of triumph. And that is revealed, of course, in its ultimate power and splendor in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's now made freely available by the ministry of His Spirit for our lives to us. A life of victory. I say he gave up the right to live. He said, no man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself that I might take it again. And what is he doing today? He's living after the power of an endless life. And of course, that's what he wants for every single one of his children. Not only just to come and say, Yes, I would like to see Jesus. I would like to wave my palms of victory and say, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We are going to be free. We're not, of course, in any way identified with the Pharisees and the scribes who say, Away with him, crucify him. That's not. But we want to be amongst those who in the crowd, maybe somewhat at a distance from all these Galilean pilgrims that have come down from the north and all these Jerusalem Jews that have gathered there as well. We have come from the outer ring. We are the dispersed who have come. Greek-speaking, Hellenistic Jews, but we want to come closer we actually want a spiritual intimacy with this man to really find out who he really is. What is it that makes him the person he is? How can I know? I can know whenever the Spirit of God implants within me the principles that governed his life then we really begin to know him. Not after the flesh, not in an outward surface kind of knowledge, but in an intimacy of heart where he becomes the living revelation to my heart. Yes, eki homo. Behold the man. To look in and see the principles that governed him, that controlled him, and say, Lord, make these principles a throbbing reality within my own heart. And very briefly, as we come to a conclusion, there is another aspect to the message and to this passage where we read these words. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Friends who have come to the feast, 
This is the principle that governs my life. This one and this one. And then this whole concept of becoming servants. And following me through. Because a revelation of Jesus to our hearts will always lead us on into service in the Master's kingdom. To become servants of the Most High God. When C.T. Studd was a young man in England, he was a very famous young cricketer in Cambridge University. He was one of a group of seven. They were known as the Cambridge Seven. God called C.T. Studd to be a missionary. And he did go to China. And he finished his missionary life and career in Africa. As a young man, C.T. Studd said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. You maybe have heard that statement. I knew a missionary. He was retired. He was an elderly man. His name was John Finley. I knew him in the 1970s. He lived in the area where we ministered. He told me on one occasion, he said, you know, when I was a young missionary in Africa, he said I was put in a little grass hut with a division between and on the other side of the division was old C.T. Studd. And now the aged C.T. Studd was in a fever and in delirium. But he was saying, Lord, I just want to give my life away. I just want to throw my life away for you, Lord. And for those who need you. The young C.T. Studd had the same driving service principle when he became an elderly and dying man. When Hudson Taylor was a young man, God said to him, Hudson, if you will just surrender to me and hand over all the keys to me, he said, I will walk all over China through you. And of course we know the story, or maybe you don't, but you should read it. The life of Hudson Taylor. A life that planted itself into the cross. A life that drew from the resurrection morning an empty tomb. The resurrection life of the risen Lord Jesus, implanted in the Spirit by the Spirit of God. And then to leave the shores of home and loved ones and go to reach in ministry and service. We can't all do that. We're not all asked to do that. But every single person that Jesus reaches, he wants to enroll you. He wants to enlist you in his active service. And to be a servant of him as a love slave, as a bond servant. To serve him and say, I will serve thee because I love thee. You have given life to me. 
I was nothing before you found me. You have given life to me. Heartaches, broken pieces, ruined lives are why you died on Calvary. Your touch was what I longed for. You have given life to me. There is nothing said about the reaction of these Greek-speaking people. But I would think that it made an impression on them an impact on their lives that drew them to this man and that desire to be intimate with him and listen to him speaking to them just as he did must have had some great molding influence in their lives. I know for sure that for everybody And everyone that comes from the outer circle of some sort of acquaintance with Jesus and comes to that inner dimension, that inner proximity to be identified with him in giving up my right to myself and experiencing that resurrection life and power then begins to have an effective discipleship and the defectiveness dissipates. And we move to a new level of knowledge and devotion and flame, heart aflame, to love him and to serve him forever. I love my master. I will not go free. I will serve him forever. Sir, we would see Jesus. Lord, we humbly pray, take the veil away. Touch our hearts today we would see Jesus. What a blessed Palm Sunday for this group of people. What a blessed Palm Sunday for us this Lord's Day. This can be. Amen. Loving Lord Jesus, our wonderful Master, Your service is perfect freedom. We thank you this day for the desire of these people long ago. And if we know anything of our hearts, Lord, today, we feel that desire in our own spirit to see Jesus.